Welcome to the sermon podcast of Redemption Church. The following sermon is by Associate Pastor Ian Mulraney. When I worked with InterVarsity, we would go on an annual missions trip to uh, Washington, D.C. every year. And our host church was called St. Teresa of Avila. And while I was, over the years that I went there, I got to learn a little bit about the history of that church and it was really a fascinating story. You see, the church was built in the late 1890s. Um, during a time where Washington, D.C. exists right on that border of southern and northern states. It's not its own state, it's just it's a, it's a district. Um, and so they were kind of trying to figure out these laws, and there's a lot of southern mentality, and so Jim Crow took over heavily in Washington, D.C. And so is anyone familiar with the term redlining? Redlining was literally... Uh, Back during Jim Crow and segregation, they would make on maps and things red lines that divided up cities into areas where white people could live and black people could live. And the area where this church was built in Anacostia was right on like a dividing line of the red line. There was a white neighborhood and a black neighborhood, and the church was right in the middle. And so you had an interesting dynamic because you got congregants of both races attending this church. And the country was in a state of racial tension and turmoil, and they didn't really know what to do with that. And so in a country that wasn't integrated, they had a church that they didn't want to be pushing any boundaries or doing anything out of the ordinary. So they didn't integrate their worship services either. During segregation, the upstairs sanctuary with the beautiful window, windows in the chapel was reserved for the white congregants. And the black congregants were given a space in the basement where they were to worship. This lasted for almost seven decades until the end of, uh, until Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement reintegrated the country. And once integration became the law of the land, the dividing wall of hostility of that basement was gone. The black congregants were welcomed up into the congregation for the first time in seven decades. And people could worship together as black and white brothers and sisters in Christ. And this mentality of racial separation resulted in 10 years later them hiring their first black pastor, which had never been done before. It's this picture of what a community that is separated but brought together can look like that Paul talks about in our Ephesians passage today. And so it's that kind of mindset I want us to think about of people separated by culture, by history, by sins against each other that Christ is trying to bring together into his kingdom, into one new humanity. So, let's turn to the text. At the very beginning of our passage, 
Well, actually, I want to play a game first. So this is a little Bible trivia. Everybody know the story of Moses when he was a baby. His mom put him in a basket to save him from Pharaoh and floated him down the river. And then Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses in the basket. And the Bible says that Pharaoh's daughter says, this is one of the Hebrew children. My trivia question is, how did Pharaoh's daughter know Moses was one of the Hebrew children? This is a different complexion. Different complexion. Not quite, but maybe. Circumcision. Circumcision. She looked under his little diaper, and his weenie had no foreskin on it. Right? This was something that was unique to the Jewish people in ancient times. It was God's way of telling his people you know, that all your males are going to be circumcised. They're going to remove the foreskin off the penis. And that's going to mark them as people set apart for the covenant with me. <laughs> so, um, that was a big deal back in the day. Whether you were circumcised or not was a huge issue. And in most of our letters in the New Testament, you'll have arguments and discussions and philosophies over, do you need to be circumcised or not to be a Christian? It's kind of silly to think how much of our sacred text talks about genitalia. (laughs) We don't really consider it a lot because it's not a pressing issue for us today. We've kind of put that issue behind us. and, And in some circles, it's still important, but I think for the most part, we don't really care what your junk looks like. Sorry for being crass, but it's important to just remember that like with segregation, like with circumcised versus uncircumcised, when you're not in a cultural context, the arguments and discussions can feel kind of silly and like, why does this matter? Why are we talking about this? But when you're in it, you know, like the Butter Battle book by Dr. Seuss, if you really care that your butter is butter side up and not butter side down, then it's the most important question in the world. And we all have these. We have our own today. And so we just have to be aware where we think matters that are important to us are the life and death questions that don't actually matter at all. So in Paul's day, circumcision circumcision was the issue of the time. It was whether you were marked as a good Jewish uh, person dedicated to the service of God, or whether you were an unclean Gentile. We've talked about Jews and Gentiles a little bit over the past few months, but just a refresher in case you haven't been here before. um, There's a lot of baggage between the Jewish people and the Gentiles. Gentiles is the catch-all phrase for anyone who is not Jewish. It literally just means the nations. And so... um, To the Jews, the Gentiles were pagans, they were unclean, they had moral practices that weren't accepted by the law, Um, and they also had negative history with each other. The Gentiles wrecked Israel several times. They came in as invaders and conquerors, Assyria, Babylon, Greece, Rome, just constantly coming in with their pagan practices and their war and their violence, taking over Israel 
burning Jerusalem, destroying the temple, bringing pigs into the temple, which is against Jewish custom, just bringing immorality and filth and uh, mistreating the Jewish people, you know, killing them and taking their wives and taking their children. And so there was a lot of bad, ill feeling towards the Gentiles. But before we get away with thinking that this is just a one-sided stance, we have to remember that the Jewish people were not the only ones who thought the world just existed in us versus them. Greeks did the same thing. Who, you know the word barbarian? That was basically the Greek way of saying others, too. Except there's a little more mocking. Uh, barbarian actually should be pronounced barbarian. And the reason for that is the Greeks said there's the Greeks and then there's the barbarians, the people who sound like they're just saying bar, 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 bar when they talk, like blah, 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 the blah, blahians. So Greeks also had their way of saying us and them. And this, so this came out in different ways of how they interacted with each other. For good Jewish people, it meant you did not eat with Gentiles or you would be unclean. It meant you couldn't enter into a Gentile's house or you would be unclean. You couldn't touch a Gentile, give them a hug or a fist bump or you would be unclean. One of these commentaries I read actually said that there's recorded cases that when a Jewish person married into a Gentile family, that the Jewish family would hold a funeral for the family member who got married to the Gentile, as if to say, they're dead to us and we're not going to associate with them anymore. And, I don't know, I just love someone who likes drama TV. I would have loved to be there and sip the tea with them. But, I digress. So, <laughs> just how dramatic things could be, but also how serious people took this issue. And so, circumcision mattered because it marked the people of God who were called by God to be on mission for him. But it, it didn't matter enough to stop the mission of blessing the world. Like we talked about a few weeks ago, God called Israel, not just to be Israel and be blessed and receive all these blessings poured out on them, but God called Israel to be a light to the nations. God promised Abraham that it was going to be through his descendants that all nations, all peoples on the earth were going to be blessed. And so circumcision didn't matter enough to stop this mission of blessing the world and bringing light to the nations. Because God wants people to have hope. All people are made in the image of God. We were singing that this morning. We were all formed by his clay. And Paul says that those who are excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, in verse 12, they were without hope and without God in the world. This isn't Paul just being dramatic or using hyperbole. This is an issue of worldview. I don't know how many of you are familiar with particularly the Greeks, because that's the context that Paul's writing to, but the Greek worldview was one of, there wasn't one idea of what happens at the end, but there were two prevalent thoughts. 
The first of which was that one day, all of this, life, the universe, and everything, is just going to explode in a fiery death, and then there will be blackness and nothing. And the second idea was that one day, everything will just reset. That will come to an end, and then the wheel of time will turn, ages come and ages go, and everything that was before will happen again. You'll be reborn and live out the same exact life you lived before, and the wheel will keep turning, and life is just an endless cycle of doing the same things over and over again. That was their idea of the cosmos. Fiery destruction or endless repetition. And if I'm being honest, I think it's actually similar to a lot of the worldviews many people hold today. That it just ends or that it just goes on meaninglessly forever. And so when Paul says people were without hope, that those who are far away without hope and without God, Paul is writing, believing in that mission that the Jews were called to be God's ambassadors to this world. Because what was the Jewish worldview? Theirs was one of hope. They had the promise from the Jewish prophets in the Old Testament that one day God is going to make everything new. That heaven and earth are going to be recreated one day. That creation itself is going to be restored. That lions will lie down with sheep. That wrong actions and sin will be gone and abolished forever. And people won't live greedily or violently anymore or selfishly. And that death, the ultimate separator, is going to be destroyed. Totally different idea. And one that even if you can't feel it or experience it now, that can give you hope for a meaningful life. And this message that God is making everything new begins and is fulfilled in the person of Jesus, who when he died on the cross, came back to life, proclaiming that sins now could be forgiven, that God's presence was accessible to everybody, and that the kingdom of heaven has come near. And so it's this message, the one of Christ on the cross, that brings all people everywhere into the knowledge of God and into the hope of what he has for them, into the hope of eternity, into the hope of love and reconciliation. And this is big news. Paul goes on to say that this is Done, he uses a metaphor, but also something that was practical. You can hit that slide, Justin. He goes on to say in verses 14 and down, he himself is our peace, meaning Christ, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. I think the dividing wall of hostility is a potent image. Here's the Berlin Wall. I use the example of the basement in that church, but 
I think it also had a practical knowledge for Christians and Jews in first century Jerusalem and Israel. You see, the temple was designed with this very specific pattern. This is passed down from Moses, but in the very center of the temple was a room called the Holy of Holies, and that's where the presence of God was said to have dwelt. That's where the Ark of the Covenant went in the Old Testament. And in the Holy of Holies, only one person could enter once a year, and that was the high priest. Then outside the Holy of Holies, you had the uh, court of the priests, where the Jewish priests and Levites could go into. And then there was a wall that separated, and outside of that, there was where Jewish men could go to worship God. Then there was a wall, and outside of that was where Jewish women could go. And then there was a wall, and outside, on the very edge of the temple, was the Gentile courts, where the uncircumcised could go and pay homage to Yahweh. It's in the Gentile courts where the marketplace was set up that Jesus got so angry about and started flipping tables. It was the only place that the nations could go to be with God. Because Jewish men and women could go a little bit farther and a little bit closer, but there was still this hierarchy of how clean and how holy are you to get to who God is. And so when Paul says that the dividing wall that Christ has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. He's being metaphorical, but he's being practical too. When Christ died, the curtain of the temple ripped. The curtain in the Holy of Holies ripped. The presence of God has come out among us. The Spirit of God, like Joel prophesied, is now accessible to men and women and children of all nations. We're not separated by, from God by who we are anymore, but Christ has come for all of us. And it's really interesting to note, in a few weeks we're going to find out that Paul is writing this letter to the Ephesians from prison. And he's probably, the reason he's in prison at this time is probably because he, had, he was accused of bringing a Greek into the court where the Jewish men were supposed to go. That was the crime that he's accused of doing. And I think Acts actually says he was an Ephesian man too. But Paul had supposedly brought someone who was not a Jewish man into the court of the Jews. And that was enough for him to get arrested and put in prison for. And so I want us to take a moment to pause and reflect. God's spirit has come and is accessible to all of us. What does that mean for you? What does that mean for the people who, as Paul would put it, are far away, that you don't think about that often? And what does it mean for the people who you might have differences with or might not agree with all the time? Because here's the good news of this morning. The good news is that all cultures, all peoples, all languages, all identities are being brought together by God into his kingdom. Hey, Finn. But to borrow that cliche, you know, if you need the good news, where's the bad news? The bad news is that all cultures, 
peoples, languages, and identities are being brought together into his kingdom. You know, just from experience of trying to get all my family in the room together for things, that sounds messy. <laughs> Especially when you pick up the cultural baggage and the, all the years of history and the ways of, do these people eat right or do they speak right or do they do this right? It's great news and it's scary news that God wants all people to become part of his kingdom. So who are those people who you consider, when you think of like, who are my people, who do you think of? And when you think of them, who's outside your circle? And it doesn't make you bad, it just makes you human, right? There's a certain classification that we just do naturally. We're Americans, you know, and there's foreigners, there's whites, and there's other people of color. You know, there's just ways that we classify ourselves. So who's the us and who's the them? And what does that mean that God is welcoming all people to his kingdom? I think it's worth just remembering that part of how this works is God doesn't say be reconciled to each other and then you can come to me. But we're reconciled to God first through Christ. And then as we get to God, we get to see who else God has gathered to him there. And it's sort of like being in a family. You didn't get to pick your siblings or your cousins or whoever, you know, they just are there. And so we get to find out who our family is. And then the hard work begins of having to learn to love and live with them once we get there. Christ is the one thing we have in common. And that's why Paul goes on to say that Christ is the cornerstone of our faith. That last paragraph he has, verse 19 to the end of the chapter. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Now Paul's going full metaphor, but it's an easy metaphor and it's a beautiful one. It's one that just says that Christ is the first block, the cornerstone that was placed down to build this new temple. And that we're each parts of that building, we're each bricks being laid and uh, it doesn't matter if this building has Dorian arches and Victorian towers and Ionian columns and just all sorts of different architecture. It doesn't matter the architecture that, you know, that doesn't separate it. All that matters is you're part of the same building. Uh, you can hit that, please, Justin. I don't know if you can tell, but that yellow and red roofed building is all one house. I say, it, it, like, it looks like it should be a hotel or something, but it's a house. Uh, that's the Remington House in California, San Jose, California, um, of the Remington Rifle Company. Basically, uh, the, the Remington man died, left his wife a huge fortune. She decided she wanted to become uh, an architect and designed a very 
expansive house and this does I wanted to show the scale of it and how big it is but if you go in the house there's staircases that go up and down there's different styles of architecture it was just like basically whatever she was thinking that day became the new project of the house this house is crazy because it doesn't look like it should work together when you're there but it's all one building why because it's all part of the same it's all part of the same walls and the same floors it's got the same foundation doesn't matter if the external stuff looks different. And so in the same way, the churches throughout history and throughout the globe have had different ways of serving and worshiping God. Our songs look different. The way we take communion may be different. The way we baptize may be different. But the heart is the same. Ephesians will go on to say, one Lord, one Christ, one Spirit. We all love one God, and that's what keeps us united together. So take a moment to reflect on just what this means, that Christ is bringing people to make a new humanity. It's a beautiful picture. It's one of good news and hope. But then I want to end with, on a more dire note, a more warning note, because... This is a hard, this is a hard message to hear. And that's to go back to the story I started at first. With St. Teresa of Avila. This church had ended up integrating and they became a congregation where white and black men and women could worship God together. And they even hired a black priest to serve them. But something happened, and that was that the church hired one of the local residents from the neighborhood who attended the church to paint a mural in their sanctuary of Jesus. They wanted to support in the artists in their community, and so they did, and so this is the mural that got painted. I'm going to say, I don't think this is what Jesus looked like, the human Jesus. But I also went to a church that growing up had a picture of blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus in the sanctuary. And I don't think he looked like that either. But this mural was enough for the remaining white members of St. Teresa's congregation to one Sunday protest and get up and leave the congregation and never come back. There's a sort of justice in that, of a church where the black congregants were once forced to worship God in the basement. Now they had a black priest and a black congregation worshiping in the sanctuary they were once forbidden to be in. But I also don't think that's what Jesus wants. I think we need to be aware of where do we let our cultural differences deny us to see God's image in other people. When we see other people finding their identities in Christ and we're offended or we get upset or we think that means they're excluding us, we have to be aware of those feelings. Jesus comes for all of us. And we just have to be careful that, you know, do we care more about 
a black mural of Jesus, or do we care more that our church is saying we can't worship in the same space together? Where, where are we drawing the line? Because I really believe, like the old Sunday school song says, that the kingdom is for red and yellow, black and white. We're precious in his sight. That the kingdom is going to have Jews and Gentiles. It's going to have white colonists and Native Americans. It's going to have Hutus and Tutsis and Russians and Ukrainians. We're not saved by our cultural or racial identities. Because at the end of the day, our blood runs red, just like Christ did. It's that blood that I pray allows you to expand your heart to encompass love for every single person that he cares for. To find out more about Redemption Church, visit redemptionbristol.org.